0: Boulevard. So what do you get if you play a country song backwards? I know you've heard this before. You get your job back. You get your house back. Your hound dog returns. Your wife returns and your mother gets out of jail. Okay I just know that the crowd here is pretty light. If the crowd were full as it normally is it would take five minutes for y'all to stop laughing at that hilarious joke. What do you get if you take the Old Testament back? What do you get if you read yourself back into the Old Testament? You get your God back, you get your people back, you get your ethics back, you get your hope back, you get the promises of God back. We've been retelling our story. Yes, we're doing our best to come out of a pandemic. And as we retell our story, It becomes very important for us to deal with what constitutes actually three-fourths of the Bible, the Old Testament. And the truth is that the Old Testament has been, well, it's been problematic for Christians probably all the way back to the first century. It's problematic for several reasons. And if you've read the Bible, you already are aware of some of these. First, some of the Old Testament just seems largely irrelevant to us. Laws about what kinds of clothing you can wear, whether or not you can eat catfish or shrimp. There are genealogies that have long lists of names that we can barely pronounce, and for many of us, they just seem utterly pointless. There's also the problem of the fact that the Old Testament sometimes depicts God and the people of God in ways that really just seem beneath what we would expect. They seem to have unworthy depictions of God and the people of God. God commands the Israelites, for example, to wipe out the entire population of Jericho. It's just hard to get your brain around why God would want to do something like that. There are statements in the Old Testament about God being jealous or God being angry or statements about women or about slavery that just make the Old Testament problematic for the Christian. And then there just seem to be statements in the New Testament that seem at least to be in tension with one another in how you deal with the Old Testament. There are no contradictions in the Bible, but there are some tensions in the Bible. And there are some problems yet unresolved by us in the Bible. So, on the one hand, Jesus uses the Old Testament as His Bible. And He even says, not a stroke of a pen will disappear as long as heaven and earth stand when He's speaking of the Old Testament. And then, at the same time, Jesus seems at times to disobey the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul says about the Old Testament that it's our book written for us, that it's holy, that it's good, and that it's perfect. And then he says, but you're not justified by it. In all of the confusion, it could be easy for us to skip over what actually, again, constitutes three-fourths of the Bible as we try to recover the story of us. The church has responded to these tensions and problems in several ways throughout history. I just want to touch on them or just take a second, but it might illuminate for you the direction we want to go to see some of the, what I'm considering, false directions of Christian history, failed attempts to deal with the problem of the Old Testament. So in the middle of the second century, a benefactor of the church at Rome, a guy by the name of Marcion, looked at the Old Testament and concluded that the God of the Old Testament is so beneath the God of the New Testament, that it's pretty obvious we've got two gods here and that the Old Testament is somebody else's God. So Marcion literally cut the Old Testament out of the Bible and he cut much of the New Testament out where he could find the New Testament in agreement with the Old Testament. He ended up with a Bible that had instead of 66 books, something more like about 11 books. Well, the church routinely said that's heresy. The Old Testament is our book. And any attempt to excise, to delete the Old Testament from the Bible is not Christian. The church fathers responded to Marcion using a technique of reading that was common in their day. So when the church fathers, and these are the influential thinkers, you can date them uh, 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 really into the 5th and 6th centuries, but you can really go all the way up to Aquinas if you'd like. What they did was they said, look, when you look at the Old Testament, it is filled with problems. And there are things that do appear to be beneath God. And there are tensions there. But that's because you're reading it literally. So the early church came up with an allegorical reading of the Old Testament. They said, stop reading it literally. Look instead for its allegorical or metaphorical, if you like, meaning. So, for example, for an early church father... One of the most famous allegorists was Origen, who, by the way, was excommunicated by the church for other reasons. Origen said, look, when you read about Jerusalem in the Bible, it might be a reference to heaven, or it might even be a reference to some ecstatic state of you in a good relationship with God, but it never has anything to do with that dirty old city over in Israel. Read it allegorically. Well, the allegorical reading of scripture actually probably predominated right up until about the Reformation, the 16th century, When finally the world said, maybe it means what it says. Which leads me to what I'm going to call the third uh, way of reading Scripture, and I'm going to call it Calvinism because I don't really think Calvin believed it, and most strict Calvinists don't believe it either, but it's sort of a popular version of Calvinism. Uh, Let's say the Southern Baptist reading of the Old Testament for a lot of Southern Baptists, and again, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just suggesting this is not an adequate way of reading Scripture, where you just sort of go back and forth between the Testaments and you blend them together. Calvin was interested in founding a Christian state in Geneva. So he lives in the 16th century. The New Testament is inadequate for founding a Christian state. So Calvin needed the Old Testament with all of its laws. Well, what that led to was a a tendency to read the Bible as only one covenant. Old and new are together. And so what Calvinists typically do is they look at the ceremonial sections of the Old Testament, things like kosher laws, how you dress, how you do with uh, mildew on the wall. And they say, we treat those morally from now on. And the moral and judicial aspects of the Old Testament, those are abiding. Those will never go away. The third, uh, excuse me, the fourth way I want to talk about, uh, and again, this is it, so it's pretty quick, is the way of progressivism. So progressivism essentially has set up an alternative view of the universe. It's not really a biblical view. And what progressives tend to do is they simply go to the Bible, Old and New Testament, And they argue that if it doesn't agree with progressive ideology, it's just wrong. We'll accept the parts that agree with us. We'll reject the parts that don't. By the way, um, progressives aren't the only ones who do this. Actually, my opinion is that churches of Christ have often tended this way with kind of a low view of the Old Testament. So, we've said we want to be New Testament Christians and oftentimes that devolved into anything in the Old Testament we don't have to worry about. That's why some of you who are older remember that people used to say about us that we don't believe in the Old Testament. You ever heard that? Church of Christ? It's an old accusation against us. And it's because to some extent we've really tried to distance ourselves from the Old Testament. You need to know this view just keeps popping up. Even Andy Stanley, who's a great guy, leads a good church in Atlanta, a very uh, well written author. Even Andy Stanley has recently come out and said, look, the Old Testament is getting in the way of evangelism. You need, and I'm quoting here, you need to unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. He even flatly says, I mean, in these words, do not obey the Old Testament. It's a view that essentially says, if I can't find meaning or richness, if it doesn't resonate with me, I'm going to have to get it out of the way. What I want to suggest is that each one of these strategies for reading the Old Testament is ultimately unfaithful because God is the author of the Old Testament, and God is never wrong. In fact, the same God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, which means that Jesus wrote the Old Testament. Let me say that again. Jesus wrote the Old Testament. All of the Bible is red letters, So whatever we do with the Old Testament, at the end of the day, we have to acknowledge some fundamental truths. It was written by God for us, and it is true in every conceivable way. So we're asking the question, what is our story? And we started in the Garden of Eden where God created a universe 100 billion light years across now for only one reason. The same reason that you might have chosen to have children. He wanted someone to love. It was all just so he could love you. And we lived in communion with that God in a utopia called the Garden of Eden. But our rebellion led us to sin. And when we sinned in the Garden of Eden, this is our story. When we sinned in the Garden of Eden, not only did we rebel against God, but we were banished from utopia, and we have spent every minute of our lives since trying to compensate for what we lost through our sinfulness. God was not done with us. And so as we mentioned in the last lesson, God called one man, Abraham, and he said to one man, I'm giving you a promise. I will make a great nation of you. I will give you a land and through you, I will bless all nations. And today we get to the story of Israel, which is the nation that is the descendant of Abraham, at least one of the nations, because there are other nations as well that descended from Abraham. And I wanna talk not so much about Israel, but about what we're to make of Israel as Christians. How does Israel fit into your story? But first, let me just say, Israel is the story of the descendants of Abraham. Israel is the story of the people who were called by God, rescued from Egyptian slavery, given the Torah, the law at Mount Sinai, given the land and the priesthood, eventually given the kingdom of David and Solomon and others, and given the scriptures that we call the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. But the big question that I want us to talk about, and try at least to get to some quick application as soon as we can, is this. What are we to make of this book that at times seems irrelevant, sometimes seems beneath the Christian message, and sometimes is just confusing to us? Well, about a year ago, I preached a series of sermons on the gospel of Matthew, you'll remember. And in that series of sermons where I argued that Jesus had become king of the universe in Matthew's gospel, I made in the seventh lesson, which is still available online. You can go online you can listen. Just look for uh, Matthew, king of the universe, lesson number seven. I tried to deal with the question of how the Christian is to read the Old Testament, what we're supposed to do with the Old Testament. Because I've done a lesson on that, and even the year before that, I worked through the entire book of Romans and did several lessons on it. I'm just going to give you a few quick conclusions because I want to get to the application in a short period of time. Let me just point out a few things the Bible says about the Old Testament. First, the Old Testament is inspired of God. So I just want to make sure you know every word of the Old Testament came from God. Any reading of the Old Testament that does not acknowledge the inspiration of the Old Testament is a fake reading. It's not true. Here's how Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 3. He says all Scripture, and by the way, he has just mentioned the Old Testament just before verse 16. All Scripture, he said, is inspired by God. All the Old Testament is profitable for those of you who are people of God. He even says the things that it's profitable for. Second, Paul makes it clear, as Jesus does in his ministry, that the Old Testament is holy, it's right, and it's good. I just want to remind you. Hundreds of times, the New Testament uses the Old Testament as its source of authority. It is the primary source of authority, apart from Jesus himself, for the writing of the New Testament. The Old Testament was the Bible Jesus used, and Jesus says the law cannot be broken. Jesus himself obeyed the Old Testament. So when Paul wants to talk about the Old Testament, Paul doesn't use terms like inadequate, beneath us contradictory. The terms Paul uses when he wants to talk about the Old Testament are these. It's holy, it's right, and it's good. Here's one way he puts it in Romans chapter 7. He says, the law is holy, the commandment's holy, it's right, it's good. And then Paul says, it's me who's broken. I just want to remind you of this. When you read a text of the Old Testament and you say to yourself, that just doesn't sound right to me, which one's broken, you or the Old Testament? You are. Remember, I made this argument last week. You cannot depend upon your intuition. Your intuition is broken by sin. Sometimes we just have to say, I'm going to let that one lie until God makes it clear. But I know that God is true and every man a liar. And God's never wrong. Number three. The Old Testament was written for us. The Old Testament's your book. It's written for Christians. You see, we almost want to think the Old Testament was written for Jews and we're just reading someone else's mail. That's not the case. The New Testament clearly makes it obvious or it makes it clear, I should say, that the Old Testament was written for us. Here's just one instance where Paul says, quoting from the Old Testament, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. It's our book. So whatever story you tell yourself, make sure the Old Testament is part of it. It's your book. Now, this is why I want to spend just an additional moment or two. The crux is how do you read the Old Testament? Let me remind you of this. The New Testament consistently reads the Old Testament in spiritual categories. I'm going to explain it, but I just want you to get the principle at first. The New Testament consistently reads the Old Testament, and the, spiritual, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, look, until heaven and earth pass away, not one stroke of a pen from the Old Testament will disappear. And then Jesus goes on to say, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. He says, anybody in the kingdom of God who teaches you not to obey this will be the least guy. He said, the littlest guy in my kingdom. And then what does he do? He starts to quote either from the Old Testament or its interpreters, and he reinterprets it spiritually. What Jesus is teaching us is that there are truths behind the Old Testament that are always true and non-negotiable. And you're to look for those. Here's just one illustration where Paul does that in Romans 2. Paul's talking about circumcision. He's dealing with Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. The argument over does a Gentile have to be circumcised before he becomes a Christian and so forth. And Paul just says, look, circumcision matters, but the circumcision that matters is that your heart gets circumcised, not your body. It's God wants the whatever is standing between you and him peeled back from your heart. Paul's reading circumcision. he doesn't deny circumcision, he reads it spiritually. Let me put it in this language. This has been really helpful for me to the years through the years. It might be helpful for you. If it's not, then you know it won't take but two minutes, and then you can, you can doze for a second and I'll wake you up at the end of it. Cause I know you're wearing your PJs at home. What's the difference between a precept and a statute? A precept and a statute. Well, the terms overlap a little bit, but a precept is a general rule or a general principle or a general truth. A statute is a particular law intended to enforce that rule or truth or principle. Let me give you an illustration. In certain places in Arizona, it is against the law to dam up the creek in your backyard. It's against the law. Everybody with me? In certain places in Arizona, it's against the law to dam up the creek in your backyard. Why? Who cares? What's the state? Why would the state care if you put a dam in the creek that runs through your backyard? I'll give you an answer. The statute says don't dam the creek. The precept is, if you dam the creek, the farmer down the down creek from you will not have water and he may starve to death. The precept is, you got to take care of your neighbor. See the precept? The statute says, don't put a dam in. The precept says, take care of your neighbor. Now watch this. When you go to the state of Louisiana, there are laws that say you can't break down the dam that's in the creek in your backyard. The exact opposite statute In the state of Louisiana. Is the precept different? Nope. The precept is exactly the same because if you break down your dam in the state of Louisiana, it might flood the fields of the farmer who's downstream from you and he might go hungry. The precept never changes, but the statute changes depending on the place and the time. Does everybody follow what I'm saying? That's what's happening in the scriptures in the Old Testament. The statutes of the Old Testament applied to Bronze Age, Iron Age Israel. Many of them no longer apply. They weren't even made with Gentiles, but they don't even make sense to Jews today. For example, all the temple laws, there's no temple. The laws only applied insofar as there was a temple. There is no temple now. But the precept, the great truth behind the statute is eternal. So, for example, the reason you had to clean the mildew off your wall a certain way in ancient Israel, it's in the book of Leviticus, it's in the Bible, is because God wanted you to live a life that was holy. The precept never changed. The statute did. The statute is always changing. So when we read the Hebrew Scriptures, what we're trying to do is discern what is the spiritual truth here that is unchanging. What does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about what God wants out of me? What does this tell me about how God interacts with humans? What does this tell me about my mission and my purpose? Those are the questions we want to ask about the Old Testament because the precepts never change, even though the statutes do. I go back to Romans 2 again. So Paul, again, doesn't say, okay, circumcision, we're done with that. Forget it. You don't have to worry about that. That's Old Testament. Forget that. No, what he says is we still have circumcision. Now it's a spiritual circumcision. It's the heart, not the body that matters. You see, he didn't reject the Old Testament. He read the precept of the Old Testament, acknowledging the statute, at least for Gentiles, Is not relevant. So even though the Old Testament is our book, I do need to say this. We need to make sure that we understand the Old Testament is our book, but it can never save us. I'll point out in just a moment, the Old Testament is our teacher, but it's never our Savior. It's powerless to save you. In fact, if you could keep every law of the Old Testament perfectly, it still wouldn't save you. It has no power to save. It's only a teacher. Here's how Paul puts it again in Galatians 2. A man can never be justified by observing the law. In fact, we can take it one step further and then we'll stop with this. Paul makes the argument that when you put your faith in Jesus, you are obeying the Old Testament. Faith in Jesus is the embodiment of the law. That's what he says. We don't nullify the law. Christians don't do away with the Old Testament. Don't, do not unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. Do not unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. No matter how good, no matter how irresistible the book is that tells you to unhitch yourself, don't do it. Instead, we observe the law when we put our faith in Jesus because he's the perfect embodiment of the Old Testament. He's the spiritual interpretation of the Old Testament. So let me give you one final metaphor and then I'm going to make a few applications and we'll be done. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul is talking again about the relationship between Christians, the law, and so forth. And then he uses this is fascinating language. He says about the Old Testament that the Old Testament, uh, this is my translation, the Old Testament, he says, was our mentor. You might use the word coach. The Greek word there is pedagogos. If you have ever heard of a pedagogical school, it's the same Greek word. So in antiquity, a common way to teach was for one teacher to take a group of students for 10 years. They didn't go from class to class. One teacher would have a group of disciples, let's say 10, 20, 30, 40, and that teacher would pour into their lives. But what Paul is saying is the Old Testament, he is our pedagogue, He is our mentor. But at some point, you got to get out there and play the game and your coach doesn't go on the field with you. The coach teaches you what faith is. The coach teaches you who God is. The coach teaches you what rightness looks like, what holiness looks like. The coach teaches you what your mission in life is. But at some point, you've got to get on the field and play the game, and the coach doesn't go on the field with you. That's what Paul's talking about. The Old Testament teaches us truths that are necessary. He's our teacher. Let me put it in language of N.T. Wright, who is, I'm sure, the best-known New Testament scholar of the last 50 years or so, if, if maybe not even pushing the last 100 years. N.T. Wright uses an analogy. By the way, I'd, actually, I'd probably change this analogy in my perfect world, but it's, it's good enough for this sermon. He, he's a lot brighter than I am, but I'd like to change this analogy. He says, imagine that you're in a five-act play. So you, by now, since Disney's gotten hold of it, you've all seen Hamilton, so you know what a play is. Um, imagine that you're in a five-act play. Act one is creation. Act two is the fall of human. Act three is Israel. Act four is Jesus. And you're act five. That's, what he, that's one of his arguments. And Wright says, can you imagine if you're an actor in that play and you show up for Act 5, but you haven't seen Act 1 through 4? You have no idea what you're supposed to do. You don't know what your motivation is. You don't know what your lines are. In a lot of ways, that's a great analogy for thinking about what the Old Testament is here to do. The Old Testament is here to give you Act One, Two, Three, and 4 so you know how to conduct yourself in Act 5 it's our teacher. The Old Testament tells us the great truths we must know in order to understand what the kingdom of God is. And I just will say very quickly, if you disconnect the phrase kingdom of God, which appears several hundred times in the New Testament, if you disconnect kingdom of God from the Old Testament, the kingdom you build will not be God's kingdom. Let me just say that again. Because since N. T. Wright, a lot of us have talked about the kingdom of God. He almost single-handedly restored language of the kingdom of God to the evangelical world. Almost single-handedly did this, which is a great feat. But whenever we bring um, our own dishes to the concept of the kingdom of God like a potluck, we always end up with somebody else's kingdom. It's not God's kingdom. The kingdom of God can only be understood by those who have read and believed the Old Testament. It defines what the kingdom of God must be. So, with that having been said, I want us to just look at a few applications of what it means to say Israel's story is my story. Israel's book is my book. Israel's destiny is my destiny. Just start by making, again, just a couple of quick observations. Exodus 34, which if you ask a a thinking Jewish person, someone who understands their own faith, a Jewish person who understands their own faith, who is God? This may be one of the quickest texts they take you to, Exodus 34, where we have seven positive characteristics of God and then one stern characteristic. This is a description of who God is. So the first thing our mentor the Old Testament wants to tell us is this is who your God is. Listen to what's said. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. By the way, if you count it, seven here. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving, wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So the first thing that our mentor, the Old Testament, wants us to know is that you have a God who has seven characteristics of love, compassion, forgiveness. He loves you. And that's just really important. In an era in which families are falling apart in America, which, by the way, is the source of so much of our discontent as a nation. I wouldn't lay the source of our discontent as a nation at the feet of capitalism or any of the isms. The collapse of our families is what's destroying people's hearts. In a world where people oftentimes grow up, abused, I, was talking, I don't even wanna tell you the story. I just heard even the last week, another story of a woman whose father started abusing her at an age, it's just unbelievable. What good news it is to know that we have a spiritual father who's compassionate, who forgives you. You know, all the times that you feel bad, it's like, I can't believe I did that. You have a father who wants to, he brought you into the world for the same reason you brought your own children into the world, those of you who have. He just wanted somebody to love He literally said, I think I'll make a guy named David Young so I can love him. It's just worth knowing this is the God we're speaking of. But it would be unfair for us not to note the second part of this because the second part reminds us that God also punishes the guilty. Just a word on this, and you've now heard me speak about this enough that I don't have to say much. Most of us in North America have pretty luxurious lives. You may not think you do, but compared to the rest of history and the rest of the world, you have a very luxurious life. Most of us have um, indulgent lives, to be honest. For those of us who have luxurious lives, justice is just not a big deal to us because we always get justice. But to most of the world, they need to know that there is a God who cares about the unending slights and persecutions and injustice that they must endure every day of their lives. Just this weekend, another seven or eight people were massacred by Boko Haram. There, there is a genocide occurring in Nigeria against Christians right now as we speak, every day. And those Christians need to know that there is a God in heaven who cares about them and that He's just and that He's not going to let this go on forever. It's good news, the justice of God is. It's good news because it means God cares enough about us to be compassionate, but he also cares enough about us to discipline us. So I've told you my dad spanked. He had four boys and a girl, and he would spank us. And now daddy, is, he's 84, and he's so tenderhearted that if we ever bring it up around him, he starts crying. He doesn't want us to talk about when he spanked us. And we have to tell him, dude, you, you, know, you only spanked me about a third of the time you should have. I, if I told you everything we did, I, could, I think you'd stop crying um you might be crying for another reason now that I've had kids disciplining my kids I can tell you the only reason I discipline them is because I love them it's the hardest thing I've ever done it's a sign of love so our mentor of the old testament teaches us that we have a God who's compassionate and he's compassionate enough to be just This is one of the things that's missing from the progressive narrative in America. I'm sorry I keep bringing up progressivism, but you need to know it's an alternative view of utopia, and that's why we have to talk about it. It has an alternative unbiblical view of utopia that does not have a right view of justice, and that's why it will always end in injustice. I just remind you, bad citizens cannot make a good government. It's impossible. Next. I'm just looking now at the Ten Commandments for just a moment. I just want you to see a a, a simple thing or two from the Ten Commandments, and I've summarized them. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to any other god. I just want to note this one. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. I just want to say when you use the word God as in, oh, my, or as in GD or whatever it is when you do this, you need to repent of that. You need to repent of it in front of everybody. You've said it in front of because God is paying attention to how you use his name. He is a holy God. And though Americans may not care about holiness and that which is sacred, God cares, and he's watching. And then fourth, remember the Sabbath day. What I want you to see is that in all of this, God starts out this, um, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, by saying, you're here to worship me. Now, I put it in a heavy language up front, but let me just say, this is a beautiful concept. My purpose, the only reason God made me so I could have a great relationship with him, and that looks like worship. And I'm going to say you ought to be worshiping God every day of your life. You bake a cake for somebody, that's an act of worship for God when you give it to somebody. When you're kind to someone, you ought to be worshiping every day of your life. But I will just say this. I miss you. Sunday is the icing on the cake of a life that should be worshiping all week long, and I miss it. have a pretty good crowd here at second service but oh my goodness it's hurting me guys it's hurting me not to have a thousand voices singing praises to god together it's hurting now like it's no fun anymore it is not fun and maybe god is just saying i'm what you needed i'm the only thing that can quench your god-thirsty souls We were made. I love you, too. Thank you. I love you, too. I miss you. I miss you guys out there who are watching us on the screen. Let me just say, we were made to worship God, and whatever you're yearning, whatever you're thirsty for, only God can satisfy that. That's what our mentor, the Old Testament, teaches us. All right, I'm going to run out of time, so let me just knock a few out real quickly. We're still in the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Six commands here. Do not steal, don't lie, and do not covet. What's being taught is that God wants me to live the right kind of life. And I just want to underscore this by saying Israel was supposed to be a working model of what utopia can look like. Let me say that again. We lost utopia when we abandoned the Garden of Eden because of our rebellion. But when God calls Israel, what he's saying to them is, I want you to live right here in the middle of the nations. Live like the Garden of Eden is still here. And by the way, as I said last week, it's phenomenally difficult to do. That I'm supposed to turn the other cheek right in the middle of a world that doesn't care and will slap me a second time. I'm supposed to show the world, Israel is supposed to show the world, this is what it means to live like God. God calls us to live rightly, and our mentor of the Old Testament teaches that, and I'm out of time. So this, Isaiah 42, actually appears twice in Isaiah. I, the Lord, have called you, this is what I want you to see. I have called you to be a light for the nations. Let me just say this. If you ever think it's unfair that God selected Israel, he called them, he chose them, but he didn't choose, for example, Nigeria, or he didn't choose China, or, you know, he didn't choose Colombia. Just remind yourself of this. The reason God chose Israel is not because they were bigger or stronger. He says this. He tells them, it's not, there's nothing about you. By the way, I've heard Joseph Sheldon say, if you were a Jew, Joseph, our Jewish guy in Jerusalem, if you were a Jew, you would know there's nothing about us. The reason God chose Israel is he said, I need one group of people who can show the world what it looks like to follow me. Now, next Sunday, you need to come back because we're going to talk about how Israel failed and what God did when Israel failed. But I just want to make sure you know, your mentor, the Old Testament, teaches you that the reason God chose you and called you is because God wants one people on planet Earth who show the rest of the world this is what it's gonna be like when Jesus returns. You see, the world's supposed to look at us and say, Oh my goodness, that's what a good marriage looks like. I want that. The world's supposed to look at us and say, I see just now I see what justice can look like. The world ought to look at us and say, now I see how a man ought to be treating a woman. The world should look at us and say, now I see what it looks like when parents love their children enough to stay with them. That this is what the Old Testament is teaching us. God wants a people who can show the whole world a light for the nations. This is what it's gonna look like when Jesus returns. Start now, start living it now, start now. And so when we tell our story, we cannot without robbing ourselves of a great blessing Fail to tell the story of the first 39 books of the Bible, three-fourths of the Bible. It's our story. We now get to be Jews. We're now Jews. The God of the Jews is now our God. He's still their God too. The covenant of God is now our covenant. The rightness of God is now our rightness. The character of God is now our character. The hope and the promises of God, they're now our hope and our promises. Now we all get to be Jews through Jesus Christ. And so this is our story. And it's the only story worth telling. And any other story is doomed to fail because this is a story that's been signed, sealed, and delivered by God Almighty through none other than Jesus Christ. So when you tell your story, remind yourself, God went through an extensive amount of human training through this Pythagogos, this mentor this coach, this book we call the Old Testament to get us to where we are and if we listen to him he'll help us become like he who leads us as I've said if you don't know whence you've come you don't know where you're going and if you don't know who you are you don't know what to do but God has given us all that we need Why don't we stand up and let's sing about our story.